For the past 12 years or so, Tina and I have had the privilege of attending some different conferences. Some of them I've been invited to speak at, others we were just participating in. One of the things that we've noticed these past few years is that a lot of those conferences have been shrinking in size. Not just in participants, but the leaders of those conferences have been shrinking them for very specific reasons. They've wanted more participation from those that are attending. And we've been invited to be a part of of those on several different occasions. One of our favorites is hosted by the Solomon Foundation. It's for pastors of large churches. It's a roundtable conference where everybody comes and shares different ideas and, and different strategies, and it's a lot of fun. The most recent one that we went to was hosted by Focus on the Family. Very small event for pastors at the National Institute on Marriage in Branson, Missouri. There weren't many of us there at all. Focus wanted us to see what they had available to help marriages out. They wanted to give us a new resource, and it was really a good time. Now, in most of those settings, the same thing always happens because it's a fairly small group of people. They want everybody to introduce themselves and share where you're from. So you get a bunch of preachers in the room, and there's all kinds of different things that happen in those introductions. Well, in October of this last year in Branson, we were about number five in the introductions. Played out the same way it always does. When it came to us, I stood up, and it's traditional for the men to introduce themselves and then to introduce their wives. I stood up and said, my name is Phil Allspawn, this is my wife, Tina, and, and then we knew what was going to happen right after that. I said, we're from Libby, Montana. And all of a sudden, faces just changed, their eyes were locked in on us, some mouths went to hang and open, and, and you could read the expressions. They were thinking, you're, you're from Montana, that's really cool. <laughs> Always happens that way. In every one of these situations, it does. We knew what was going to come next when the first break time came up, people came over to where we were sitting and they wanted to ask questions about Montana. They always do. They start with questions like this, well, where at in Montana? And so we tell them that we live in the northwest corner and they need a little more geography to help with that. So more often than not, we say we're about 100 miles from Glacier National Park and that resonates for a lot of people and they're able to understand that. But they always want to know a little bit more. So we tell them we're 30 miles from Canada and 30 miles from the Canadian border, depending on where you're at. And that gives them a little bit more of a a connection. And then they continue to ask questions. And Tina will almost always tell them that we're 90 miles from the nearest Walmart. And they think we're nuts. That, That doesn't make any sense at all. But then they follow it up. Every time, followed up with this same question. What's Montana like? For the people that have never been here, that's, that's what they always want to know. Makes perfect sense to me. Until we had moved here, I wanted to know the same thing. What's Montana like? It's this mysterious place, almost mythical in nature. What's Montana like? So Tina likes to mess with them and tells them about bears and wolves and mountain lions and having to ford the river to get into town, different things along those lines. And, and they say, are you serious? And, and we always say, well, no, but yes. And she'll pull out her phone and show them pictures of bears in, in our yard in the fall. And our Flatlander friends will almost always say the same things. You have to get out of there. Those bears are going to eat you. You, can, you can't live there. How have you let your children run around with them? And on and on and on, all these different things go. But more often than not, people are still just enthralled. They want to know what this place is like. They want to know what Montana is like. And it really does make sense to us. For those of us that that live here, we know that it is the last best place. 
For those that have grown up here, maybe you don't have that same scope of experiences of people wanting to know from you what this place is like. But for Christians, we can apply it in a whole different realm. Because people bring with them the same types of questions, not about Montana, but about heaven. What's heaven like? We ask those types of questions on a regular basis, whether it's us as believers wanting to get some of the details and focus for ourselves, or whether it's people that are making their way to Christ wanting to know what heaven's like. It's this mysterious place way beyond Montana that has all kinds of questions associated with it and attached to it. That's not surprising at all for those of us that have read the Bible because we've seen passages like this in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, However, it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. That's what's waiting for every believer, something that goes beyond our comprehension, something that we can't imagine because we haven't seen it. And until we've been there, It really isn't going to come into focus. Instead, we're going to have all of these questions that run through our hearts and into our minds and oftentimes out of our mouths. What's heaven going to be like? Well, if we'll open up our Bibles, we can actually find a few glimpses that give us an idea and they help us begin to put some of the things in place that we need to as we long towards heaven to keep that type of anticipation going. And it really It's an exciting thing that God has given us in this idea of heaven, this place of heaven. Now, I want to give you just three things that we know from Scripture about this place. In my efforts to answer that question, what will it be like? These are three of the things that I think we probably ought to grab hold of. The first one is this, heaven is eternal. Heaven is eternal. Now, that's hard for a lot of us to grasp. It truly is. Heaven is eternal. We find different things that help us understand it. As I was studying for this message, I came across a couple of quotes that that kind of brought it into focus for me. Let me share them with you real quick. Take a look at this one. I bear my testimony that there is no joy to be found in all this world like that of sweet communion with Christ. I would barter all else there is of heaven for that. Indeed, that is heaven. As for the harps of gold and the streets like clear glass and the songs of seraphs and the shouts of the redeemed, one could very well give all these up, counting them as a drop in a bucket, if we might forever live in fellowship and communion with Jesus. That comes from the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, and and really there's a lot of depth in what he is teaching there. Just to be in the presence of God and to be in the presence of Jesus is enough, and it should be enough. But when we put that up against the idea of heaven being eternal, it's a little bit overwhelming, especially for a lot of folks that struggle to have words, that struggle in conversations, that struggle just to sit down and be able to talk through different things. The idea of walking and talking with Jesus forever could be totally intimidating if the drive from Libby to Kalispell is intimidating for you, whether that's with your husband, wife, or with a good friend, and you know that you only got about 10 minutes of talking, and then you're done, and it's just going to be quiet. Well, what's eternity going to be like if that's the case? If it is truly eternal, how in the world are we going to fill our time? Well, I found some other quotes that really help us understand it better than just Spurgeon's idea. I really like this one. Take a look at this. I think heaven will be like a first kiss from Sarah Addison Allen from The Sugar Queen. 
For those that have experienced the joy of that first kiss, you know exactly what she's talking about. It's mysterious and it's wonderful. But the best part about it in heaven is it's eternal. It's going to go on forever. Every day is measured with that same mystery, that same excitement, that same wonder. I love the way she sums this up. I think heaven will be like a first kiss forever, forever. Because heaven is eternal, Jesus is eternal, God is eternal, and they think in those ways, it can stretch our thinking and cause us to to go places that maybe we have never gone before because we are so temporal, because we live in such an earthly way, eternity is difficult for us to grasp, yet deep inside of every one of us is a longing for it. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Old Testament, book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3, verse 11. Solomon writes these words. He was the wisest man to ever live. He had some great insight. Listen to what he says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Deep inside of you is a mechanism that longs to understand eternity. Deep inside of me, placed there by God, is that exact same mechanism. One that causes us to long to understand eternity. For many of the reasons that we've talked about these past few weeks. But also because it allows us connection with God that will never end. God has placed it within us. Yet it's very difficult for us to grasp because placed within us as well is a clock a human clock, a temporal, earthly clock, and God designed that one as well. So that's a little bit of our wrestling match. We measure our life by days. We measure days by hours. That's God's design. It started all the way back in the book of Genesis. Let's go to the first book of the Bible, the first chapter of that book, and I'll show you why this can be a little difficult. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Our clock started ticking right there. That became the the standard by which we would measure everything. There was morning and there was evening in a 24-hour period. Therefore, our clock governs the way we see everything. Interestingly enough, in the first six chapters of Genesis, we find people that were living by a calendar that God had created that used these 24-hour periods that went on for nearly a thousand years. In the first six chapters of Genesis... People literally lived right up to the the edge of a thousand years. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. That's old. That's old. I can be honest with you and tell you that there's times that 90 doesn't look very appealing to me. So 969? How in the world could we fathom that? Well, God placed that calendar in effect so that we could govern life. However, by Genesis chapter 6, God said, I'm not going to allow that to happen anymore. I'm going to change the calendar. And he changed the number of days that mankind would live on this earth. Go with me to the sixth chapter of Genesis. You'll see it for yourself. Verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, 
The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. Now listen, his days will be a hundred and twenty years. From that point forward, God changed the limits. He said, I'm not going to let people live to nearly a thousand. Nobody's going to cross the 120 mark from this day forward. Now, a lot of times we'll see in the newspaper headlines like this, oldest person in the state of Montana has died, oldest person in the United States has died, or possibly even this headline, oldest living person in the world has just died. Oftentimes, they're between 102 and 110, somewhere in in that range. Well, that's because God said nobody's crossing this line anymore, and there's a myriad of reasons for it. God wanted to limit the number of days that we would have on this earth that we might glorify Him and not get ourselves into trouble. That's why He did that. 120 years. You can't handle anything past that. I can't handle anything past that. I'm doing all I can to handle 47. That's that's what I got going on here. So God said, 120, that's my limit. A lot of people ask this question, well, how did God change the calendar then? How did God change lifespans? If he created us to live eternal, and in the first six chapters of Genesis, people were pushing a thousand, but after the the sixth chapter of Genesis, 120 became the limit. How did God do that? That's a really great question. Scholars and theologians have explored it in a lot of different ways, and the majority of them have arrived at this same place. You ready for the answer? Here it is. Through climate change. Now, there's a lot of people that would say, hold it, are you about to talk about global warming? I don't know that I want to buy into the whole global warming thing. I don't know that I do either, but I am going to tell you that there was a climate change biblically that took care of God changing the markers in people's lives. Nobody was going to cross 120 because the Lord changed the climate. We're still in Genesis chapter 6. Let's go over just one more to Genesis 7, and I'll show you where it happened. You don't have to be a biblical scholar or even have a long time invested in the church to be familiar with the idea of the flood and the story of the flood. Now, you may not have all the details intact, but most people are aware of it, the whole idea of Noah and the ark and the flood that came. What a lot of people don't realize is how God brought that about. There is a theory attached to the flood. We call it the canopy theory that gives us great understanding. The canopy theory teaches that God had placed a canopy around the entire globe, and that canopy held back the rain. Up until Genesis chapter 6, according to the theorist, the world had never experienced rain. There had never been a flood. There had never been a deluge. Water had never fallen from the sky as we know it. All of the plants were watered through mist and dew. The canopy kept everything very tropical. And then when God sent the flood, he tore down the canopy. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. When we stop to think about the amount of water that it would take to cover the entire earth from the river bottoms to the top of the mountains, this had to have been a flood like nobody had ever experienced before. 
And one of the easy ways to understand it and to process it is to think of God tearing down the canopy that had held back all of this water and all of a sudden it hit the world, it hit the earth with such great force that it could kill every living creature. It hit the earth with such great force that the flood could start building to the point that it would literally cover Mount Everest. Now the water was coming not only from the sky, but it was also coming from the deep, from the earth. God opened up the springs of the earth and he sent water from below and water from above. And all of a sudden in 40 days, he flooded the entire globe. In the process, he changed the climate. He had opened up the heavens. That very possibly brought about all kinds of things like ultraviolet radiation. It brought about all kinds of different things that we wrestle with even today. But it limited mankind's years on the earth. Here's the second thing it did, which is kind of intriguing. It took care of dinosaurs. Now, we know that dinosaurs exist or existed. We found their skeletons. We found the fossils. They're everywhere. You cannot dispute that. Even biblical scholars cannot dispute the existence of dinosaurs. But a lot of people want to know what happened to them. Well, it's pretty simple in the biblical record to understand it. They were killed in the flood. And the reason they were killed in the flood was God was changing the climate. We were no longer going to have a tropical environment around the entire globe that could sustain the dinosaurs. So God took them out. He said, that's it. That's done. We're not going to have them anymore. And the floods killed them. The floods took care of it. That's why we see such wonderfully preserved fossils. That's why we're able to see the skeletons that we are able to see because the floods came so fast and the water came so fast that it took care of preserving them. Now, there's a whole other group of people that would say a comet came from heaven and, and that destroyed the dinosaurs. Folks, they made that up. That's where that came from. They made that up. It is nothing more than a theory. We have historical record in Scripture that helps explain it. It's one of the things that I love about the Bible. Even as we look at, at some of the topography around us, it's always interesting to hear people talk about the glaciers that took millions of years to recede. And that's what created certain geographical regions. Well, isn't it possible and even more than that probable that receding floodwaters did the same thing? And the force of the floods may have changed all these different things? You bet it is. You bet it is. Now, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. You can have all that for free, no extra charge. Let's get back into the idea of heaven being eternal. In order to understand that, we have to look at how God sees time. There's a passage of Scripture tucked away in the book of 2 Peter that people stumble across all the time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to what Peter writes. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. For people that have read the entire Bible, or maybe even just the New Testament, when they come to that passage, it becomes this massive stumbling block. Because how in the world are we supposed to process a day being like a thousand years? Yet the Bible says that's how God sees it. That's how Jesus sees it. That's how he processes it. For him, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. It's a blink of an eye. But for us, because we measure everything in 24-hour periods and 365-day years, to think about a thousand years being like a day is almost more than we can handle causes short circuits in our brain. 
So we have to jump into some other places in Scripture that help stretch it a little bit so that we can actually see how this works. Go with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. John writes these words, but Jesus is the one who actually says them. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, if you listened really critically and very close to that, you began to get another idea of how God sees time. Listen to it one more time. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, that doesn't make any sense in our linear way of thinking. As we hear those words, we want to transpose them. We want to change them around, move them around so that it makes more sense to us. And there's a a number of teachers that say people do that very thing. Now, I have to give credit to Johnny Erickson Tata for showing this to me. I had never seen it before. This is from her teaching, and I, I just really do have to say thank you for helping me understand this the way that I am today. And I just discovered it this past week. She would say in her teaching that these emails that float around all the time that have jumbled letters on them and you can read through the whole thing because the first letter and the last letter of every word are the same, but the order in between the first and the last letters don't matter. If you have the first and the last in place, you can actually read it because your mind sees it that way. Has anybody seen those? You know what I'm talking about? She says that we do the same thing with this passage. Here's what we want to do. We want to change it so that it doesn't read who is and was and is to come. We want to rearrange it into a linear fashion so that the passage reads who was and is and is to come. That's the way we can understand it. And so more often than not, when we read this verse, that's exactly how we read it. Transposing the words. It's easy for us to understand. But God didn't write it that way. He wrote it the way he did so that we could understand how he sees eternity. Jesus is the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Implication is, great teaching is, he is not bound by space or time. And in eternity, we won't be either. Some of the implication is that you're going to be in the present but able to go back and see the past and look into the future. Space and time won't matter. That's the eternal aspect of heaven. Jesus understood it and lived it if we would simply pay attention to the things he said. Let's go to the last chapter of Revelation now. Revelation chapter 22. I'll give you another example of this. Verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Again, these are Jesus' words. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Now, Jesus said those words 2,000 years ago. Look how he said it. Behold, I am coming soon. And what he did not say is, behold, I'm coming back in a few thousand years. Or behold, I'm coming back in the year 2530. He didn't say that. He said, behold, I'm coming soon. It is as if he was speaking in the immediate. We know that he said it 2,000 years ago, and we've still been waiting and waiting and waiting. And people have messed this up over and over and over again. Jesus was speaking in the immediate about something that was going to happen well into the future. Because to him, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years are like a day. He is eternal, and so is heaven. When we begin to understand that, here's what it does to our thinking. It stretches us into a place where we realize that it is going to take forever to explore what God has waiting for those who love Him. It's going to take forever 
to experience all of the goodness that heaven holds. It will take eternity for us to understand everything that we want to understand. It will take forever for us to see all of the goodness that God has created for us. Folks, isn't that encouraging? Heaven is eternal because God is eternal. And if God created a place like Montana and we get to explore it in the years that we have on this earth, but he holds something so much better than where we live in store for those who love him, and he says it's going to take eternity to really discover it all, how exciting is that? Heaven is eternal. Now that leads us into one of the next things that we need to understand about it. Heaven is a place. It has its own geography. In modern Christianity, there's a number of teachers that have wanted to say that heaven is nothing more than a state of mind. It's just the the simple act of being a Christian and having Jesus live within us. That is heaven. Heaven is just a state of mind that goes on forever. What? Terrible teaching. Horrible teaching. And it isn't even close to biblical. The Bible teaches us that heaven is a place. Acts chapter 1 will actually give us the perfect illustration of that. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, listen to this. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, we know from the study of the book of Acts that today Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where he's at. Stephen looked up into heaven and he saw him there. When Jesus ascended from the earth, that's exactly where he went. He went to heaven. He went to be where his father was. And did you see what the Bible said about where it is? It is... Somebody say that a little louder. It's up. Look at this again in verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, we're going to read that together. I'll do all the reading except that one tiny little word, up. When we come to that, I want you to read it out strong and bold with me. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, that's where heaven is. Heaven is up. It makes perfect sense when you think about the vastness of heaven. Look up into the sky Maybe you want to do that during the day and then again at night and you will see this vast expanse. If heaven is as big as the Bible says it is and it is as great as God promises it is and it is, then it's going to take the vastness of the sky to contain it. It's going to take something beyond our simple thinking of the the geographical regions that we live in to understand that. So heaven is up makes even more sense when you think that if heaven was down, it's either at the center of the earth, not big enough to hold it, or it's in China. And heaven is not China. It, it just isn't. And it's certainly not the bottom side of China. So heaven is, say it with me again, heaven is up. Now, if Acts chapter 1 isn't enough to drive that home for you, let me take you to the middle of your Bible, the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 53, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the sons of men.
to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone is turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. We're kind of having a little bit of an interactive moment here in the message, so let's keep that going. According to the psalmist, God is looking down, which means that heaven has to be up. Now let's do that together again. God is looking from heaven, which means that heaven is up. There's the geography of heaven. It is above us. It is a physical place, a real place that is up. It is above us. God is there today. So is Jesus. So are those that have died in him. They're there with him. The angelic realm is there with him. And God, according to the psalmist, is looking down to see those that are his because he knows what's waiting for them. There's great anticipation of being able to give the gift of heaven to those that are his children. As I get older, I find myself in a place where I would much rather give gifts than receive gifts. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? That's particularly true with my family, with my wife and my kids. And I get so excited about the gifts at time that if I'm actually ahead a of the eight ball and I have them a, a week or two or even a day or two before I'm supposed to have them, I want to give it to them right then. So I'll, I'll go out maybe a week or two ahead of our anniversary or Tina's birthday or Christmas and I'll find the perfect gift for her. And when I bring it home, I'll, I'll look at her and say, you want to know what? I, I got you. You want me to give it to you now? And because she is more patient than I am, she'll typically look back and go, no, I'm going to wait for the day. I don't know how she does that. And she never asked me, do you want to know what I got you and do you want it now? Because I would say yes. And I think she knows it. And because my wife robs me of the joy of giving her the gifts early, I have turned my attention toward my children. My daughter's birthday is coming up in just a few weeks. We're pretty early in our shopping. We've already got her present. So we brought it home the other day and I said, Katie, you want to know what it is? She said, no, I'm going to wait for my birthday. I said, you want me to give it to you now? No, I'm going to wait. <laughs> if that's true for us, how much more so for God as he knows what he is going to give us in heaven? He's looking down in anticipation of giving that gift away. How exciting is that? We know it's up and we know God's there, but we know he's looking down with great anticipation. And the reason he's so excited about it is God knows how marvelous it is. He knows how marvelous it is. The biblical writers have done their best in places like the book of Isaiah, or the book of Daniel, or even in the Gospels and the book of Revelation to try to describe for us what the heavenly realm looks like. But the terminology seems to fall short because it's earthly rather than heavenly, yet it still stretches our imagination. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, verse 1, by the way. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought, brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that's how John recorded the vision that he was given, and that terminology would have spoken greatly to people of those days, but for us, it's still pretty difficult for us to grasp. We want to hold on to the gold and the pearls and and so on, and, and certainly they'll be there, but it makes it difficult for us to figure out what heaven will really be like. It was interesting before first service with the guys that I pray with, Gene Oji was in there and he said, boy, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be a full-time gold miner. That's, that's what I'm going to get to do. And I said, wow, that's interesting. You're going to pull pavement out of the ground and, and uh, just give that to God. I don't know why you want to do that. See how it, it's difficult for us to try to grasp? Well, Randy Alcorn is one of the, the leading experts on eternity, at least today he's one of the leading experts. He's done a lot of study and some great writing about it. I like the way he describes this. The new Jerusalem will be a place of extravagant beauty and natural wonders. It will be a vast Eden integrated with the best of human culture under the reign of Christ. More wealth than has been accumulated in all human history will be spread freely across the immense city. Presumably, many other cities will be on the new earth, such as those Jesus mentioned in the stewardship parables of Luke 19. Look that up, by the way. It's quite interesting when you find out that heaven isn't just the new Jerusalem, it's all kinds of new places. The kings of nations who bring their treasures into the new Jerusalem must come from and return to somewhere, presumably countryside and cities lying beyond the new Jerusalem. But no city will be like this one. 
for it will be called home by the King of Kings. Heaven's capital city will be filled with visual magnificence. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. John goes on to describe the opulence. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. John then names twelve stones, eight of which correspond to the stones of the high priest's breastplate. The precious stones and gold represent incredible wealth, suggestive of the exorbitant riches of God's splendor. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. Each gate tower is carved with a single huge pearl. Among the ancients, the pearl was highest in value among the precious stones. The text doesn't say this, but commentators often suggest that because a pearl is formed through the oyster's pain, the pearl may symbolize Christ's suffering on our behalf, as well as the eternal beauty that can come out of our temporary suffering. John describes a natural wonder in the center of the New Jerusalem. The river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Why is water important? Because the city is a center of human life and water is an essential part of life. Ghosts don't need water, but human bodies do. We all know what it's like to be thirsty, but the original readers who lived in a bone-dry climate readily grasped the wonder of constantly available fresh water, pure and uncontaminated, able to satisfy the deepest thirst. Notice that the source of this powerful stream is the throne of God occupied by the Lamb. He's the source of all natural beauties and wonders. They derive their beauty from the artist. The great river reflects his thirst-quenching, need-satisfying nature. He always meets his people's needs and fulfills their longing. On the new earth, we won't have to leave the city to find natural beauty. It will be incorporated into the city with the river of life as its source. The river flows down the city's main street. Likely, it has countless tributaries flowing throughout the rest of the city. Can you picture people talking and laughing beside this river? sticking their hands and faces down into the water and drinking. This fully accessible natural wonder on the city's main street is amazing, something that would be featured in any travel brochure. I love the way he brings all that together, just to stretch our thinking into the fact that heaven is a marvelous place. According to Revelation chapter 22, it waits for everyone whose name is written in the book of life. It waits for everyone that is a child of God and and Revelation chapter 21, I'm sorry, is actually, I said 22, is actually very plain about the fact that those whose names are not written there will never experience it. It is this eternal, wonderful, marvelous place is the gift that God waits to give you after this life is over. But the only way you can do it and experience it is by making sure that you have the right ticket. And the right ticket is Jesus Christ. Your name has to be written in His book, and He's the one who puts it there. And after every person has given their life to Christ, their name is written in that book. It is there to guarantee your admittance into heaven. But if your name isn't there, my friends, you will not pass through those gates. It's impossible. Jesus said, He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him. No man gets there unless His name is recorded in that book. You don't want to miss out on what heaven is. It is eternal, and it will take forever to explore the wonderful, marvelous aspects of that place. And the best part is simply being in the presence of Jesus. 
Make sure your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If it's not, we'll help you with that. I'd love to talk with you about it this morning. If you want to respond to this invitation, we have people that are ready to spend however long it takes with you today so that you can understand what it means to have your name written in that book. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, it is a great promise. Heaven is. And we can certainly only imagine it. Until we've experienced it, that's, that's the best we can do. But we're grateful that you've given us opportunities to glimpse into heaven and see what it's like. Thank you for writing about it. Thank you for speaking about it yourself. And thank you for placing within us a longing for it. I pray, Lord, that that mechanism will kick in in those that have not taken the steps that they need to. I pray, Father, that they'll understand that, that you've taken care of all the heavy lifting. We just have to take the first step towards you or the last however you want to look at it. And I pray, Lord, for those that need to, that today will be the day that they will. If not today, then I pray that tomorrow will, or at the latest, the the next day. Father, there's an urgency to this, and I pray that all of us will understand it. In Jesus' name, amen.